Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action Podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome, Love in Action Nation and world. If you're joining us from Turkey, Hungary, Cameroon, and Jamaica, glad to have you on board. So my guest today had a rough and dysfunctional upbringing. In fact, he grew up in a home that he calls inhuman and heartless with a dad that destroyed his sense of well-being and basically told him that he would live a life of failure. So as he grew up and went to school and graduated from college, he began moving up the ranks of corporate America into leadership roles. And that's when he had a monumental shift. The love he didn't get from his dad growing up in the form of support, coaching, direction, empathy, and recognition, he decided to give to the people that worked for him. So by loving and caring about his people, they responded with unprecedented performance. So what was it about his leadership that got people to scale mountains? Well, my guest was curious about that himself. So he started to investigate the why behind what attracted people to his caring leadership style. He wanted the evidence. And what he found is that he was literally affecting the hearts of people. And that's what led my guest, Mark C. Crowley, to write a book that is now considered a classic masterpiece that every leader should have on his or her book stand. If you know Mark C. Crowley, you know I'm talking about the book, Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. So here's the thing. There's nothing soft about Lead from the Heart. Mark gives us a roadmap to driving uncommon engagement, productivity, and profitability. So who is Mark C. Crowley? He's been recognized globally as a workplace thought leader. He is a speaker, a consultant, and a prolific writer featured in places like Fast Company, The Huffington Post, and USA Today. And his book, I'll have you know, is now being taught at eight U.S. colleges and universities. Finally, Mark also hosts his very popular Lead from the Heart podcast, where he's interviewed world-class luminaries. I'm excited about this conversation. It's one I've been waiting to have for a long time. So let's dive in and meet Mark C. Crowley. So joining us on the podcast is none other than Mark C. Crowley, who I've been trying to hound down for the podcast for a while now. And as I mentioned in my introduction, Mark is the author of a classic now, Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. So honored to have you, Mark. Welcome to the Love in Action podcast. Thank you very much, Marcel. <laughs> so I want to start with a question I always ask my guests, and that is, what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? I think it would be hard to get up every morning without putting a smile on. <laughs> you know, I know what the, the work is, which is really to convince people that the way we're managing people isn't really working. And uh, I will tell you that one of the fun things for me 
I literally get up at five o'clock every morning. I go to the gym. And the very first thing I do is I ride a bike for about an hour. And I respond to people from Twitter who have written or corresponded while I was sleeping. So from Europe and India, and it's very, very satisfying. So immediately it makes me happy and smiling because I can see that what I'm talking about is resonating with a lot of people. And that makes me very happy and makes me smile. So, and plus I'm working out at the same time, you know, getting a little <laughs> cardio. That's great. Not two birds. So Mark, I want to uh, frame this conversation and talk about, it's hard to, to talk about the book and not talk about that experience with your childhood. And so I want to start there, if you're okay with that. You had a painful upbringing, and, and you attribute that experience to kind of your leadership philosophy as you moved up the ranks in the financial industry, which is a brutal industry to be in when you're talking about leading from the heart, right? And uh, so walk us through that phase from childhood to you know, becoming an executive and how, kind of how that evolved. Well, it's, it's not a phase so much as it's, you know, sort of a big part of life. But if I can condense it, I will say that um, my mom died when I was very young of cancer. I did not see it coming. No one had prepped me for that. And then my father took over and I still don't really know how to explain what his drive was, but he was honestly, he was intent upon destroying my self-esteem, my self-worth, my sense of well-being. He wanted to cripple me. And so he, he did a pretty good job. It wasn't physical abuse. It was psychological and emotional abuse and constant, this steady drip of just attacking me and attacking what my belief system was about who I was, who I could be, what my essence was, what my influence in the world was going to be. I mean, he literally told me a million times, you will never amount to anything you lack. You fundamentally lack. Those were his words. So that's a, you know, sort of a perverse way to grow up. And then fast forward, leaving out a few details, but essentially, my father was a very successful guy. He was one of the top executives at General Electric. And so he, you know, sort of had this sort of like dual body, you know, Jekyll and Hyde kind of a thing. And so he, for all intents and purposes, was very successful and he was financially very successful. And so I, kind of imagine this is a bit of a paradox because he says you're not going to mount anything but he also said i'm going to pay for your college if you ever go so i was anticipating that i'm going off to college i'm going to live at home it was about 30 miles away from where i was living and um, he just pulled the rug out from under me and said it's time for you to move on it's time for you to move out this is the same shock that hearing my mom just died it was like I did not see this coming. I don't understand it. And so I went into five just brutally difficult years of trying to survive. But also in the back of my mind, my father told me that I would would fail. And so I equated graduating from college as sort of the linchpin of whether or not he was going to be right or not. So I had this massive drive to get my degree. But I had life against me. I had no money. I had, you know, had to figure out how to manage my time and make a living and feel safe. And so what happened was that I got to a point where I stabilized. I started doing very well in school. But when I graduated, as I was graduating, I began to realize the people that were my peers who were graduating at the same time, they were just so much better prepared for life. 
they had courage and they had self-belief. They didn't have all these doubts that were imbued in me. You know, they were willing to go off and say, I want to go to Harvard. And you know, in the back of my mind, I was like, Harvard would never take somebody that's like me. And, you know, but I knew this. I could observe myself. And so I don't really know how to explain this, but when I started managing people, I made this leap this inexplicable leap where I said, if I had had more support, more coaching, more thoughtful direction, more empathy, more care, more love, more support, more recognition, all those kinds of things, somebody to teach me, be there for me, have my back, I decided to give that to the people who managed, that I was managing, the people who worked for me for reasons I still don't understand. And what I ultimately discovered was that all the things that I felt that I had missed out on that I was not given in my upbringing and didn't have even after the upbringing ended, if you will, that if I gave that to people, no matter whether it was male or woman, young or old, educated, not educated, that they need this. Human beings never outgrow needing the kind of support that I was getting. So I used to just take it for granted that people would perform well for me. So I always got, I kept getting promoted. I kept seeing people do extraordinary things. My results were always great. I was always highly thought of. And I just sort of like, that's just sort of a folk chart. You don't really question it. And I was in my forties when somebody said, you ought to figure out why it is you manage people really differently because you do. And it never crossed my mind. And I started to dig into it and realize, oh my God, I was completely shaped by how I grew up. I think I was literally 42, 43 years old when I finally had the epiphany, and that ultimately led into the book. Hmm. So for listeners, share your corporate background a little bit to how you arrived at this position in that industry. So out of college, I ended up going to uh, a bank, a financial institution, start off as a management trainee for whatever reason, this is the thing that I still have cellularly is the, I can't believe this happened to me kind of a thing. It's just unfortunate, but I have to accept it. But people saw things in me and were willing to give me opportunities that, you know, I'd go home and go, what the hell are they thinking? You know, this is not going to, you know, right. But I'm like thrilled that they're seeing it in me, but also hearing the voice of you're not that guy, you know, this complete challenge all the time is conflict. But I kept getting these opportunities and then doing well in them. So ultimately, I got promoted and then promoted again. And I was leading sales at 27 years old. I was leading sales for the entire bank and, you know, waiting for somebody to come in and go, oh, we made a colossal mistake. It was Bill Crowley we meant to promote, you know, and, and so that bank ended up failing and I ended up going to another organization and running a large group of retail branches. And we were number one in the company and, you know, consistently great. And we kept promoting people and it was just this wonderful experience. And then the bank came to me and said, you have none of the background that we need, but we want to give you a role that we think you'd be good at. And they asked me to build a licensed investment broker platform in the bank, 4,000 branches nationwide. And we did it. And then they made me the national sales manager for all investments. And to this day, I've never sold the stock or a bond, but I had a couple thousand people that worked for me that did. And so it was another confirmation or so that it doesn't really matter what job people have. The way that I was leading people was going to get great performance out of people, even people who were 
only get paid when they make a sale. So you would think, well, they don't really care about somebody supporting them and coaching them and teaching them and wanting to know about their lives and what's going on. They just want to make money. That was what I was told, by the way, by senior vice presidents who are reporting into me when I first met them. They go, hey, the way you've been managing, that's never going to work here because these people just want to be left alone. And I went out and met with them and found out that the last thing they wanted was to be left alone. It's like, teach me something. Give me opportunities to grow. What are other people doing? I want to learn. I want your attention. I want your appreciation and recognition. They were begging for it. They were just so desperate for it. And so uh, prior to writing the book, my very first year, we had record revenue, record profit, and I was named leader of the year, even though I had none of the background. The true brokerage background was not my expertise at all. Yeah. And yet people are responding to how you led them as human beings. So I want to segue into the book. It's such a fascinating book because you bring medicine and science into the conversation. And, you know, somebody can look at your book and read the title, Lead from the Heart, and think that, oh, you know, that's nice. It's a warm and fuzzy title when they see the heart. But you literally talk about the heart from a scientific standpoint. And, you know, deep down, most of us have this belief that the human heart has no place in business or management. And we're taught to keep our feelings in check and not show up with our true selves. And, you know, don't get too close to people at work. To me, these are all matters of the heart. And so then your, your book comes along and bam, you provide evidence that we were all wrong. So unpack that for us and really kind of get into the why of uh, why you wrote the book. Okay. The organization that I'm working for, so I had just been given all this recognition. In the background, you can probably see the trophy that they gave me. And so I'm on cloud nine. I'm doing great work. I've completely proved to myself that I could transform this organization. And the the bank itself failed. And so basically sold itself. And so I ended up staying with the acquirer. And there was a visceral reaction that I had, which is I can't work for these people because their values are so off. They just, all they wanted to do was just take advantage of people. And that's just not even then, you know, long before I even thought about writing the book, I was just repelled by it. So off I go. And then I thought, you know what, I'm going to write a book. But what I wanted to write was these. So what effectively became the second half of the book, which is the practices. So what I believed was if I could teach people to do these four things and to do them all well and consistently, you're going to have incredible productivity from people. So you asked a really interesting question. And I don't know, I don't remember ever sharing this with anyone, but what happened was, so off I go. So I'm not really thinking that this book is, I think it's just going to be Mark writing a book, fulfilling a dream, proving that he can do it, right? And whatever happens to the book afterwards was not part of my ambition at all. It wasn't like I was trying to write a bestseller or anything. I didn't have those dreams. It was just articulate this and help managers be better. That was the goal. So 10 months into this process, I had all of these piles, all the different chapters, and I was ready to write. So I'm like, I've done all my research, I've done all my analysis, I've thought it all through from what my experience was, and I was very excited, I'm getting ready to write. And I'm having a conversation with a friend of mine who I used to work with, and he says to me, he says, so you are gonna explain why this works, right? And I said, well, what do you mean? And he goes, well, People are just going to think you need to have a shitty childhood in order to lead this way. 
And it completely, absolutely shook me because I realized, A, he was right, and B, that I had done none of that. I just thought people would just take me at my word. So now I'm realizing, okay, so I'm going to have to explain what this is. Well, now the first thing I need to do is to explain, well, what was the impact? Why do they work, right? So now he's forcing me to dig into this. And so sitting in exactly where I am right now, I had this epiphany probably, I don't know, four or five days after the conversation that I was affecting the hearts of people. And I went home and told my wife, I have wasted a year of my life. This is dead on arrival. Because if I ever go back to the people that I was working with and tell them, hey, you know, I'm writing a book, it's called Lead from the Heart, they're going to go, what the hell happened to Mark? You know, like, did he have a nervous breakdown or religious transformation? Or, you know, how did we lose him? Because everybody knows. So I literally got really, really depressed and thought, man, I just completely wasted all this time because no one's going to take this seriously. And then my wife said to me, she goes, well, didn't you already prove it? And I said, what do you mean? She goes, didn't you already prove it? Like, don't you already know in your essence that it's true? And I was like, yeah, you're right. She goes, well, why don't you just go see if you can find some evidence? Mm -hmm. That is what led me to writing to world-class cardiologists. And I will tell you, Marcel, a funny story that I wrote to all these cardiologists and none of them responded to me. And so I got depressed again and thought, none of these people want to talk to me. I told them what I was doing. I couldn't get any response. And I had a life insurance policy that expired when I left the bank, that the bank was paying for me. It was, you know, from my principal life insurance. So I had to go replace it. So they came out and did all the blood and, you know, they did all your tests. And then I get a phone call saying, you need to rush to the hospital because you have a serious heart problem. And I said, I don't think I do. I'd run the New York City Marathon and I was in good shape. And I was like, they didn't register, but they were insistent. We, our results show you have a heart problem. So literally the next day I go to where I go to my doctor and I've got a new doctor. So he's never seen that before. And so I tell him the story and he says, let's run a new AKG. So he runs a new EKG and he goes, you're fine. They just misread it. He goes, but I'm your new doctor. He said, well, tell me a little bit about what you do for a living. And I just looked at him and I go, you wouldn't know any cardiologist that might have a sense of, you know, what I'm trying to do here. And he introduced me. He goes, that's weird you should ask me, but this woman, Mimi Ganeri, who's part of the script clinic in Loya, she just wrote a book on this and I'll introduce you. And that was transformational. But the, this is how sort of these just extraordinary experiences, these synchronistic situations that occurred during like the guy saying, you know, you have to explain it. And, oh, I need to ask you about what you do for a living because I'm your new doctor. And, oh, yes, I happen to know that right person. So it's confirmation for me. The reason I'm telling you the story is because it just gave me confirmation that this isn't a book I was writing. This was something much more substantial. And when I realized that, you know, it, it influenced the way that I ended up going on to write. Yeah. You know, I don't care what religious background you come from, but some things are so obvious because of that, that that kind of tells you this is the path you need to take. And then the momentum just goes from there. So uh, thanks for sharing that. That is so fascinating. So let's get into the heart. Literally talk about for centuries, we've had this understanding that the human heart only has one role right in life. And that's to pump blood and new research. Like you said, comes along that proves that this is simply not true. And in fact, with all of your interviews and and the research you did, now it's been found that the human heart has intelligence. 
and that the heart actually influences human behavior. This is awesome news for business. You want to unpack that for us? Well, so obviously, when I went to meet with Dr. Mimi Guneri, by the way, she graduated number one in her med school class. She just had a, a national NP or a PBS special that you may have seen. This was like in the last three or four weeks. So I laid it out in my letter to her saying, this is my thesis of leadership. And is there any medical science that effectively can support the, my thesis, which is that I really was affecting the hearts in people. And so I went and met with her. She didn't even get out of her chair. I walked in and she just looked at me and she said, Mr. Crowley, you figured out something. We're just figuring out medical science. And I don't know how to describe this except to tell you the literal truth, which is I just had tears coming down my eyes because I realized whatever she was about to tell me was going to validate my whole life experience. And she said, look, she goes, I went to medical school. I was taught that the heart was a pump. And she said, we worked on cadavers and the doctors that were teaching us said, don't get caught up in any of this humanity thing. It's just a carburetor. Treat it like a body part. And so that's what she did. But now she's a cardio surgeon and she's got her patients and she's starting to realize. So she's saying, you know, Marcel, you're in here with a heart problem. Tell me about your life. Well, it was always they had alcoholism. They had depression. They had a bad marriage. They had a really horrible work situation, financial difficulties, you name it. But the point was, is that they all had something pretty serious going on in their lives so that their biography was affecting their biology. And she's like, well, wait a minute. If this is just a pump, that couldn't happen. Whatever is going on in your life shouldn't have any effect on a part, right? And so that opened her mind to, wait a minute, maybe I wasn't taught correctly. And so she said, then I started to notice in just normal conversations, people saying, you know, you need to follow your heart, or I'd like to see you have a change of heart on that idea. Or, you know, teachers have all told us, Monday, you're going to have an examination. So you need to learn this material by heart. And she said, these kinds of metaphors are in all languages, and they go back, you know, not centuries, but, you know, millennia, we've always sort of believed that the heart was more than just this pump. We believe that it shapes our opinions and it influences our choices and our reasons. And so 300 years ago, when they first were able to look at a heart, they couldn't see any evidence of there being any intelligence. So it was just easy to decree that until you can prove otherwise, this is the fact. The brain is where it's all at. The heart is where the pump is and never the twain shall meet. And now we know that the heart and mind are connected through the vagus nerve, that the heart is actually sending, they send communication back to another. So it's like you and I having conversations about, okay, here's what we're going to do. And I want you to do this. And this is the influence that's going on. And that that communication is happening constantly. And the heart is actually sending more communication to the brain than the other way around. Mm -hmm. So our hearts are informing our decisions. So to boil all of this down, I believe that engagement is a decision of the heart because the feelings and emotions drive our thinking, not the other way around. More often than not, it's how we feel that makes the decision in terms of how we actually behave at work. Uh, wow, Mark. That's just fascinating to me. So let's transition, speaking of engagement, and talk about you had this conversation where you met personally with John Gibbons. And John Gibbons, for the listeners, he's one of the directors of the conference board and one of the top researchers in employee engagement. And so in your conversation with him, 
he shared that, I'm paraphrasing here, he discovered that a person's degree of engagement in their work is significantly influenced by emotions and how they feel about their job, you know, their boss and their coworkers. So basically, how people are made to feel on their jobs and whether they sense their own needs are being met drives them to either engaged or disengaged performance. So talk a little bit about those findings that you discovered. It's interesting because the conversation that I had with John was a three-hour conversation. And, um, you know, we did it over the phone. You know, the Skype hadn't been invented. Really, you know, none of this technology just a few years ago didn't even exist. And so um, he stayed until about 8.30 at night in New York to have this conversation with me. It was supposed to be like a half hour conversation. And he just sort of opened up the kimono and shared, you know, all their new research. And, but it was very interesting because, well, you know, before we talk, why don't you tell me a little bit about what your work is? And I said, well, my thesis is that, though I think the book is going to be about leading with heart, leading from the heart. And he goes, oh, like, I mean, just shut me down. I was like, look, man, you know, that might work out in California, wink, wink, you know, whatever that meant. But, you know, he's implying that California might go for this. But in his language, I think he said something like, in the sharp elbow world of New York, this is not going to fly. So he was basically kind of killing the whole idea. And so, you know, you have to say, well, do I believe what I know to be true? The good thing is I grew up in New York and I had managed people all over the country, including New York and New York City. So I knew that he wasn't right, but I also knew that he was right. You know, I also knew that there's, there's plenty of people that think what I'm talking about is complete bullshit and I was going to get that anyway, right? Right. But in the end, the very end of the conversation, 8.30 at night, his time, I said to him, is there any final conclusion here? And he goes, yeah, you know, people work really hard for me. And if I'm going to expect that from people, I've got to love them. And I'm like, whoa, you know, you realize you just like wrote my sermon. But it was just another one of those synchronicities where he was so engaged and I think really deeply believed what I'm talking about. I think he's now at Price Waterhouse, by the way, Cooper's. Okay. I think he's, oh, okay. he's, now, he's now become a director over there. So he's influencing a lot of the, you know, the number guys to think like this. But yeah, just huge, huge, huge collaboration for the idea that we love to say that we are rational beings and I think therefore I am. And that's just not the case. What do you think he actually meant when he said that you have to love your people? What did he mean by the word love? Well, I mean, that has become a much more, I have a deeper understanding of what that means from a research standpoint to validate this. But I think what he really meant was make sure that people know that you appreciate them. Make sure that people know that you value them. And it's not just going, a hey, good job. It's really expressing that in a way that makes people feel that like you really do. So if it's feelings, if I say to you, hey, Marcel, you know, good job on the podcast. You're not hearing those words. You're like, is he bullshitting me or is he telling me the truth, right? right? And if you think I'm bullshitting you, that's sort of the end of the conversation. It's like, I don't really like this guy. I don't really trust this guy. And none of that is rational. It's all going on in this instinct that we can't control. So you have to kind of embody it. And I think John was somebody I met him. The very first speech that I ever gave was for his organization. And I had a chance to meet him in person. And he's very much that guy. He's just genuine cares about people. Yeah. And so people can feel that. And if, so if it's inauthentic, you can't fake this. I think that's really what he meant. Right, right. 
Right. So, Mark, you, you propose a new model of leadership that matches up with today's workers. So tell us about what that is, practically speaking. Practically speaking, it's making sure that when you hire people that you know that they're going to be a good fit, that you don't hire people into the organization thinking they're going to be good for you, but it might not be good for them. You know, that you're bringing people into the organization and you're telling them, hey, I want to make sure you know that part of the job is cleaning the toilets. I use that metaphorically, right? But it's if you tell people what the expectations are or how you manage or I happen to be in a habit of sending out emails at one o'clock in the morning on Saturday. It's like, okay, do I need to respond to that? Versus you get into the first week of the job and you start getting these emails and you're like, oh my God, do I have to respond to my boss? And it's this lack of trust. So it's establishing right up front that it's got to be a win-win. We want you to be here, but you have to want to be here. And so exposing people to the culture letting them talk to people who already work there and say, hey, Marcel, I'm going to offer you the job, but you need to tell me you want to be here. As opposed to, I just nailed this guy. He's going to be good for me because it doesn't really work. And then from there, it's really about getting to know people and what their aspirations are and supporting people as they are, as opposed to one size fits all kind of management and leadership, which is yeah. a big part of what we do. You know, this is how I lead. If you don't like it, then go, you know, it's like, no, it's what is it that makes something important to you? What do you want to my job? Do you want to be CEO? Are you happy doing this job? Do you want to learn something? What kind of appreciation do you like? Could I give you some flexibility if you have an elderly parent? It's knowing their story. You cannot manage people if you don't know their story. That is absolutely essential. And we don't take that time. We think, oh, we'll get to learn people. I'm saying learn it, understand it, and adapt to it. Yeah. And then, you know, another component of this is, I just read this phenomenal statistic, phenomenal in the sense that it's totally unbelievable and stupid. But the London of Times just this Sunday showed that um, more than half of people in the UK actually hate getting up in the morning to go to work. Think about that, that sense of dread, you know? And one of the things that they said in the article, because the researchers were saying, you know, part of the reason is X and X's is that people don't, don't feel appreciated and recognized, which is one of the most easiest things to do. It doesn't cost you anything. But a lot of leaders think, oh, every time I congratulate someone or thank someone or praise someone, it's like, I got to reach into my wallet. It's costing me something. So I have to be spare with them. Can't, and they're going to get soft around the middle if I give it to them too often. So here's your monthly congratulations. Now get back to work kind of a thing. And it doesn't work. We need it constantly. And this is the big, big leap for a lot of managers is they can't get used to the idea that people thrive on that and they won't take advantage of it. In fact, they work the other way. They'll do better work when you appreciate them. But again, it has to be authentic. It has to be genuine. Yeah, it's funny. It, uh, and I was going to transition to talking about one of the reasons I brought you on this episode is to talk about your podcast because we kind of interviewed a few of the same people, uh, one of them being Ashley Goodall of Cisco. And he told me that learning is continuous and that it's never a one-time event um, where you have those awkward conversations at the end of the year, uh, but that people learn in the moment. And so you have to have these micro moments of continuous feedback. And he doesn't even call it feedback. He's talking about giving people positive attention about what they're doing right. And in fact, he calls feedback one of his nine lies, right? If you remember uh, yeah. in, his, in, the, in the interview. So let's talk about your podcast. It's, uh, you know, I'm, I'm 10 episodes deep and you have literally, how many people have you interviewed so far, Mark? I just did my 30th. 
Okay. So you've talked uh, to the world's influencers, top influencers, uh, thought leaders, scientists, authors. As you look back, who captivated you the most? Well, thank you for mentioning this because you don't know what you're going to get into. You don't know what you're going to learn. You don't, you, you have a sense, you know, I know going in that these are the things that I'd like to talk to them about, but it almost never goes in that direction. Right. And so they have a vitality to them, but I've been fortunate in having, you know, world-class people one after another. And I, coincidentally, I just a couple weekends ago, I took the whole weekend and I listened to all, not 29 of them. And then I picked the 10 ones that had the most powerful, the most profound insights. And I wrote an article. I just posted it on LinkedIn. And the idea being that if you haven't listened to the podcast, at least take these 10 ideas because they're amazing. Ashley is one of them. And one of his ideas, by the way, is that we think our job is to go, hey, Marcel, I need you to do this. And, you know, when you get done with this, I want to make sure, you know, that this gets accomplished. And, you know, some just a little feedback on your performance, if you could do this a little bit better. And we're always telling, 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 directing. We think that's the job of management. And Ashley's point of view on this, which I know to be true from my own direct experience, is that what people don't want from you is to be the boss all the time. They just want your attention. And this is like a huge trip for people. It's like, if I'm going to have a meeting with Marcel, I got to to tell him all the things I need him to do. And what he's saying is just have regular conversations with people. Just say, hey, how's it going? How can I help you? And it's like, what's going on with you? And we think, oh, that's a waste of 20 minutes. You know, I need to get over here, you know, and it's not because it's the human connection. It's the heart. And I said, so I think what I've learned from, from these podcasts is um, one, it's, it's got an audience in 110 countries now. And so the yearning to be managed in a more caring and supportive way is clearly out there. People are desperate for this. But the other is, is that whether it's Ashley coming at it from a sort of Gallup informed point of view or Tom Peters or Kim Powell talking about CEOs or Liz Wiseman talking about multipliers, Tomas Chamorro talking about how more male-dominated leadership practices backfired on us. All of these kinds of different disparate points of view, they all add up to massive, massive, massive validation for what I'm talking about. Hmm. And so the conversations become just a joyfulness for me because they're coming at it from, they're just offering new and more substantial ways of validating that leading from the heart has to be the future because every aspect of it is being validated from a scientific standpoint, from a research standpoint, from Gallup just polling people all over the country and the world. And so it's just, you asked me at the very beginning, what makes you smile at the beginning of the day? It's knowing that this is building huge momentum and that people are finally taking this seriously. Wow. So, Mark, I want to talk about fear. And I always ask this question to my guests, and that is, why do you think that so many leaders lead through fear instead of the principles of love and care and leading from the heart? It's interesting. I just, before we met, I interviewed a gentleman from the London School of Business, uh, Dan Cable. And we actually had a bit of this conversation, so this is very much fresh in my mind. But part one is fear works. I was speaking to a very well-known, one of the largest insurance companies in the world, and they had all their top management there. And when I got done speaking, 
like literally the first person to ask a question was the national sales manager. And he goes, I love everything you're talking about. I totally agree with it, but I just want to make sure you understand something. If I get halfway into my quarter and we're not hitting the numbers, I'm going to the fear button. What do you think of that? And I go, well, you're going to hit your numbers. And he looked around like, you know, like he'd just been validated. And then I said, but you've destroyed so much trust. You've done so much harm to people by doing this that ultimately people are going to shut down and they're not even going to want to work for you. They're going to end up leaving. They're going to become disengaged, disheartened because it puts, you know, these toxic chemicals into people that they're not supposed to have. And it's the opposite of what makes people thrive optimally, right? So you can do it. And the reason we do it is because we go into fear ourselves. And this is the big leap that leaders need to make is like, hey, if I have a formula for how I'm going to manage people and I get behind the eight ball here. So meaning, let's take this guy's experience. It's midway through the quarter. I'm not hitting my numbers. How about encouraging them? How about bringing everybody together and say, hey, what can we do? How do we solve this? And so we mobilize everybody's energy in a positive way and say, we can do this. That's just how sports teams do it, right? They don't go in there and go, look, man, if you don't win this game, you're going to get cut, quarterback. You know, defensive end, if you don't tackle that guy in the next five five plays, I'm never going to have you on the team again. We, we would never do that because it shuts people down, but we do it in business because... We did this 100 years ago, and we found that by managing with fear that people would show up for work and they would do their job and they would be obedient. And But ultimately, it does so much harm that people are like, I'm not working like this. And uh, I'll answer it in a different way. I have a son who graduated from Cal Berkeley. He was an All-American water polo player. And, and first year of school, the coach told him, hey, you have to go a fifth year. I'm going to redshirt you. So I've been dad's paying five years instead of four years of college. And uh, so he came home, my son came home from college without any debt whatsoever, right? So this is a huge gift. You know how much college costs. And uh, so I said to him, we were having a conversation over breakfast. And I go, what do you think you want to do now? This is like a couple of days after graduation. And he goes, all I know is I sure as hell don't want your life. I don't sure as hell don't want your career. Now, somebody listening to this might go, oh, my, and he raised a real jerk. But no, what he was telling me was, I watched your career. I watched how you were treated. I watched the pain and the suffering that you went through your whole life. I saw how much you had to give up to succeed. And I don't want any part of that. And I wrote an article about how to manage millennials and it was completely influenced by that discussion because I realized, wait a minute, we raised these kids. They saw a different way and they were like, I'm not putting up with this. And so the millennial mindset is, I don't want any of this. I don't want a part of this. So they're going to work and the baby boomers and Gen Xs, they're saying, well, you know, these millennials are so demanding and they have such high expectations. It's like, no, we raised them. We taught them this. You don't want to live like this. You don't want to have constant stress. You don't want to have a boss who's oppressing you all the time. And so bottom line is, you know, I had a discussion with, Amy Evanson at Harvard Business School a few just a few weeks ago. And we were talking about fear. And she said, you know, we keep going into it because we're comfortable with it. We went to school and teachers told us, you know, you better study hard. So that was the fear element. You know, not let's study so that we can learn. It's study so you can take a test. And if you don't do well on the test, you know, all kinds of bad things are going to happen to you. So very early on, we're teaching kids 
that fear is how we're going to manage. And then we just keep passing it on from generation to generation. But really, neurologically, emotionally, we know it doesn't work. And so I would say, take it out of your regimen. Just have the courage to manage with with something other than fear. And you're going to get more sustainable long-term performance for people. Mm, I love it. Thanks for that, Mark. Mark, this is a shout-out segment now. Is there someone whose work or research or thought leadership, past or present, you'd like to recognize that aligns with your message of lead from the heart? Well, I mean, we were just talking about this in the sense that, you know, I've had now 30 guests on and they're all coming at a slightly different point of view. But when I think about, you know, what's being taught at Harvard Business School or what's being taught at Stanford Business School, and to answer your question more directly, I'll give you one person that sort of um, is just the mind blower of mind blowers. His name is Dr. James Doty. Oh, yeah. He's a med school professor of neurology, so he's a brain surgeon. He teaches brain surgery at Stanford. And um, he had a childhood, interestingly, very similar to mine. Not identical, but enough of the variables that influenced him to, you know, shift in a very different way and go in a different direction. Um, But what he has discovered and what he has told me in an article that I wrote and he's been on my podcast is that the heart matters more than the brain in leadership. So when you have somebody who's a world-class brain surgeon, you know, who should be an advocate for the mind, for neurology, for, you know, for uh, everything brain-oriented, and he's saying, no, we got it all wrong, it's all about the heart, that's pretty much the best validation that I can get. Hmm. I don't know if you can top that, but you can try. And what I usually do is I give you the guest a chance to end the conversation and bring it home your way. So is there something that you'd like our listeners to absolutely walk away from that will make a difference in their lives, Mark? I think that what my work does is it gives people permission to manage in a way that they know is the best way. When we think of the people that were the managers that changed our lives, if you will, and by the way, most people can only come up with one or two. Sometimes people can't come up with one. So these people that really made a difference to us, that's what we want to emulate. But we also know that most of the people that we work for didn't manage that way. So we think those are the people we have to emulate. So we have to be the jerk guy. We have to be the fear guy. We have to be the get back to work guy. And what I'm saying is, is that you now have permission to manage people in a way that's much much more authentic, human, and real. Humane is really, a lot of people are using this word human, and it's not human because humans can be jerks. It's humane. It's caring about people. It's it's recognizing that they have a stake in this too. And if you support their stake, they're going to support your stake. So I'm just saying, don't be afraid to do this now because there's too much information that validates that it works. Well, it's certainly been an honor talking to you. And uh, for my listeners, Mark's book is one of those that only comes around every 20 or 30 years. This is my impression of your book, Mark. It's, Thank you. I look at it now as a classic. And it only came out, uh, what, in 2010 or 11? Yep, 11. Yeah. Mm-hmm. End of 11. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can say that it's the kind of book that you have to pull off the shelf every couple of years, dust it off and do another go round because every time I do, I always learn something new each time. So I appreciate you joining us on the podcast today. Thank you. And I wish you great success with it. 
So the book is called Lead from the Heart, Transformational Leadership for the 21st Century. And uh, where can people contact you or learn more about you, Mark? Probably you know, all roads lead to Rome. So leadfromtheheart.com, markccrowley.com, either way you want to go. That's everything about me is there. All my articles, the podcast, you name it, the book. And you write some prolific articles as well. So when I come back, I'm going to have three leadership tips from this very conversation that you can immediately apply to leadership, leading others or leading yourself. And I'm going to do that after this short message. There's a dramatic shift taking place in workplaces around the world. It's a rapidly growing movement called the Humans First Club. Change is happening bigger and faster than any time in history. For business to flourish through this dynamic time, it's time to trash the old-school command-and-control mindset and put people at the center of business. It's time to put humans first. Live events with the growing online community is driving change throughout the globe. It's time for your voice, your ideas for a brighter future. Join us now at humansfirst.club. That's humansfirst.club. Your time has come. You belong here. What a great conversation that was with Mark C. Crowley. What did you guys think? Leave me a message and comment via Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook by using hashtag loveinactionpodcast. I would love to engage you in a conversation. So I'm going to leave you with my three leadership tips that you can apply to your workplace. Tip number one, Mark reminds us that feelings and emotions drive our thinking. And that's certainly good news for leaders, right? But before we drive people's thinking to go where we want them to go, we need them to experience a positive feeling or emotion. So my first tip is in the form of a question. What is one practical thing you can do today, not just talk about it, but something you can actually act on? to make someone feel good about themselves. This is how you're going to start influencing people from the neck up. Tip two, when you interview people and you're making sure that they're a a good fit for your company culture and your values, don't hire them based on what you hear or how you feel about that person. Take them around and expose them to the work environment. Let them talk to as many people as possible. And then before you offer the job, says Mark, Job candidates need to tell you why they want to be there, why they want to work for you. And here's my last tip. Get to know your people on a personal level. Know their story. You can't manage people if you don't know their story. And it's funny because Gallup has been telling us this for decades, that we have to learn what our people's strengths are. We know what they bring to the table so we can craft jobs around people's strengths and gifts. And we don't do that unless we actually sit down and take time to get to know them personally. This reminds me of something that Cheryl Batchelder, former CEO of Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, once said, I must know you to grow you. Okay, one last comment before I let you go. I thought this was interesting. You know, I preach from this idea of making workplaces more human and teaching leaders to become more human. And Mark comes around and says, we got to stop using the word human because jerks can be human too. And he's got a point. People that do damage in the workplace are also human. So we need to replace human with humane, which is more fitting 
for leading from the heart or loving action. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, or Spotify. And if you want the show notes to this episode, visit my website, marcelschwantes.com. On behalf of my wonderful and amazing production team over at One Stone Creative, I'm Marcel Schwantes. We will see you next time when I sit down with Gallup's very own chief scientist to discuss his latest book, It's the Manager. Thanks for joining us on the Love in Action podcast. If you enjoyed this show and want to help get the word out, make sure to subscribe and leave a review.